You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. So grateful for Drew Humphrey last week preaching for me. He had about 50 hours notice uh, before he was having to stand up here and preach. While he was preaching, I was giving birth to a kidney stone. And so um, Jennifer, our proud parents, we have named him Rocky. He came into the world weighing two and a half ounces and about eight and a half millimeters long. And so we're just really happy. We're registered at Target. If any of y'all would like to purchase some, uh, some gifts for our brand new child, Rocky. Wow. You know, when we, when we talk about restoration and, and revival in our lives, maybe some things that are fractured in your life that need to be mended, maybe some things that are, that, that are sick that need to be healed in your heart and your life. When we talk about starting over or the need for maybe a lot of us in this house just to start over again, what we're really talking about is, is having a breakthrough, kind of moving away from the things that are in the past and, and getting past addictions or godless habits or laziness or a lack of discipline in our, in our walks with Christ. What we're really talking about is a, is a breakthrough, moving forward and all of our regrets being behind us. For many years in, in aviation, most people believed it was going to be impossible to break the speed of sound. But back in the 1940s, the late 30s, early 1940s, the, the Brits and the Americans, they attempted several times to, to do so, to, to get a plane up to Mach 1, the speed of sound, 767 miles per hour. And there were a lot of attempts, but the closer you would get to Mach 1, the closer you'd get to the speed of sound, there was so much, so many shock waves and so much pressure in front of the plane that it was impossible to, to push through. In fact, it created something they call the, the Bernoulli effect. And the Bernoulli effect was pushing wind on top of, or pushing air on top of the wings, making the plane go down. The the plane, of course, needs air, needs wind underneath the wings to keep it a a, a lift. But instead, the the weights, the shock waves, the the wind would fly on top of the wings and press that that plane down. Well, finally, the, the Brits in 1945 developed a plane called the Swallow. And the swallow was getting closer and closer all the time to Mach 1. In fact, it got up to 0.94, which is right below Mach 1. But once it got there, that Bernoulli effect came into into effect. And it it began to shake that plane and rattle that plane. In fact, two or three times the swallow that they had created actually disintegrated, destroying the plane and and killing the pilot. And I think there's an alarm clock going off. It's time for someone to wake up over here, maybe. Does anybody hear an alarm clock over there somewhere? Okay, that's not just me. There's not ringing in my ears. Okay, awesome. Oh, stop for, awesome. Just tell them that we said hi. There you go, awesome. Perfect. It was like the closest it could be to me. So I was like, is anybody else hearing that but, but me? I thought my ears were, were ringing, but it was actually a phone, phone doing that. Where was I? The swallow. It was disintegrated and, and, and the pilot was, was killed. I mean, over and over again until finally an American by the name of Chuck Yeager came on the scene. And Chuck Yeager is to planes what what John Wayne is to horses, what Steph Curry is to three-pointers, what Kanye is to gospel choirs, what, what uh, Morgan Freeman is to voiceovers, what Justin Bieber is to stupid songs. Like he just kind of stepped up to the plate and this was, this was the guy, this was the man and they built for him a Bell X-1 airplane. 
And on October 17th, 1947, Chuck Yeager in that Bell X-1 uh, hitched that X-1 to the bottom of the B-29, and they went up to 19,000 feet, and then Yeager pulls a lever, and the rockets there in the Bell X-1 just, just took off, and so Yeager went up to 42,000 feet. And as he got to .96 Mach, or right below Mach 1 at .96, he said his stomach flipped and the instrumentation in, in his plane just completely went bizarre. Then he went to .98, and at .98, he said the G-forces were so strong that his eyes began to see sideways. They were pushed back to the side. He almost blacked out completely, and then boom, he hit Mach 1, 767 miles an hour, the speed of sound, and all the shock waves and all the pressure in front of the plane went behind the plane, and there was a breakthrough. Friends, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're asking God for is a, is a breakthrough in our lives where everything that is before us that seems to slow us down or cause spiritual turbulence in our lives, that those things would be behind us now. All the mistakes, all the regrets, all the things that are wounded, all the things that are unhealthy in our lives, that we would move past that in a breakthrough. A new day would come. New hopes would be set for the days ahead. For the past several weeks, we've been talking through the series of Restore to Me, Starting Over, and we've looked at about four different things so far on how you and I can, can move forward together, have a breakthrough in our lives. The first thing that we looked at was that restoration begins with brokenness over our flaws or brokenness over our failures, brokenness over our sin, especially in light of the holiness of God and view of the holiness of God. Before we're ever going to be restored, before we can ever start over again, first we must be broken for the things in our lives that aren't right, that aren't godly, that aren't pleasing to God. The second thing that we looked at was that you, can, you should and we can grieve over our sin, but then move forward in grace. For grace, the grace of God always flows to places of repentance. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw that we can retain restoration. We can stay in, in, this, in this power of, of walking holy, walking completely with God when we believe in and we grow in this truth that Christ is in you. Christ is in us, Christian. And we can maintain or retain that restoration in our life when we believe this and we know this and we're growing in this truth that, that Christ is in us. Then last week, Drew hit a home run when he reminded us that we can enact restoration when we know that our life is in Christ. Not only is Christ in us, but we are in Christ. So here's the fifth and last thing I'd like to share with you today as we wrap up this sermon series this morning. Here it is. Come to the Lord. Return to the Lord daily for a downpour of his love and his grace and his power in your life. So brokenness, repentance, Christ in you, you in Christ, and then come to the Lord, return to the Lord for a downpour of his love and his grace and his power on you in your life. With your copy of God's word, would you turn with me, please, this morning to a great Old Testament prophet, the book of Hosea. Let's go to Hosea together. Hosea chapter 6. I encourage you to open up your copy of God's word there this morning. If you're relatively new to church, Hosea is in the Old Testament. If you can find the book of Psalms, it's about the middle of your Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. 
or there's never any shame in going to the table of contents in the front of your Bible, if that helps. Um, let's go to God's Word together on your device or your copy of God's Word or sharing with somebody. Let's go to Hosea chapter 6, begin in verse 1. As you, as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context. Hosea has been preaching now for 80 years. And Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, the largest of the, the minor prophet books, the most complete, I believe, of the gospel scene in an Old Testament book, as we see here in this minor prophet Hosea. The people of God at that time, they were prosperous. They had no needs or very few needs. They, they had everything they wanted. The people at that time, as Hosea was writing, God's people, they had a lot of things. And because they had a lot of things, they did not see a need in their own life to be restored. But there were so many things that needed restoration in their lives. Let me read all this passage to you. Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Come, And let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. If you're taking notes this morning, let's just look, first of all, The very first few words of of verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, come, let us return to the Lord. Here it is. There's an invitation to come home. There's an invitation for everyone in this house to come to the Lord. An invitation for everyone in this house to return to the Lord, to come back home. Uh, The word here in, in, in the Old Testament and New Testament alike is one of the most beautiful words ever. The word is just come. It is an invitation from God to you. It's an invitation from God to everyone who is here today. The word come means this, that you don't have to stay where you are. Let me say that again. The word come means this, you don't have to stay where you are. Things can be different. You can return to God. You can come to God. Your your despair can become joy. Your sadness can be turned to happiness in the Lord. Your doubt can become faith. Your discouragement, your despair can be turned around. You don't have to stay where you are. Things can be different. Come, and then the next thing I find fascinating because the the pronoun here is plural. Let us. An invitation from God. You don't have to stay where you are. So let let us, let let all of us. And maybe the reason that that pronoun is plural there is because sometimes in life it feels like it's just us, just you, just me. Maybe you feel like you're all alone in the struggle in your relationships with others, or you feel like you're all alone in your struggle in your marriage. You feel like it's just you that struggles with pornography, just you that struggles with a lack of freedom, just you that struggles with, with laziness, just you that struggles in your walk with the Lord, just you that struggles with grace. But come let us. Highland family, let us. Brother and sister in Christ, let us. Return to the Lord. You're not alone. All of us here today, we can come together to the Lord. We can return to our God. The word here, return, is a great word. So come, let us, let us, all of us, let us together return to the Lord. The word, word return is a, is a fun Hebrew word. The word is shub. And the word shub means to, to turn over or to flip over or to, to come back or to be set right again. It was actually a term that shepherds would use when they would see an upside-down sheep. 
You know, not only are, are sheep dumb, they're often fat. And once the sheep gets upside down and its legs are straight up, it often cannot roll back over the right way. And so a shepherd would shub a sheep. A shepherd would get down on his knees and would find that fat upside down sheep and would turn that sheep over and not just let it go, but then would rub the legs, massage the legs on that sheep because there was no blood because they'd been upside down to make sure that, that sheep could stand on its own. And, and then that sheep was sent on its way. This is what it means. It means to, to flip over. It means to come back. It means what was upside down is now made right. So come. The invitation is there. You don't have to stay where you are. And let us, let us return to the Lord. Let us, everything that was wrong, be made right. Let us come back to the Lord. Verse 1. Let me read this again and jump into verse 2. Because this is an interesting passage that we need to think about for a second. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Here's the second thing I want you to see in this passage this morning. It's an unusual road to restoration. I will grant this to all of you here today. It's an odd road. It's a strange path to be restored. I imagine you heard it the first time. If you didn't hear it the first time, certainly you heard it the second time. If you did not hear it the first or the second time, hear it the third time. This is an unusual passage. It is God who has torn us so that he could heal us. It is God who has struck us down so he could bind us up or he could bring healing in our lives. I want you to see this. There is purpose in our pain. There is purpose in our pain behind the hurt. Listen carefully. Behind every hurt in our lives is a God who cares. Behind every difficulty in your life, there is a God there who cares. And some of you, I'm going to get some emails on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I want you to hear me carefully. He, God, is lovingly, graciously, even creatively creating the next crisis for your life. So that you may know the depth of his love for you. He is sovereign over every storm in your life. He is strategically, creatively, lovingly, graciously creating the next crisis that you're going to enter into to pull you into a deeper relationship with him, to pull you into a a higher understanding of who he is, of his grace, of his love for all in this house. Sometimes it is God who originates the storms the hurts, the difficulties, even the pain in life. Now, I'm not saying that God originates the sin, nor am I saying that God originates the effect of sin. We've got that handled just fine in this house. But I am saying that God is sovereign over the storms in our lives. He is the one who has torn us down that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he might bind us up. So there's purpose in our pain, but catch this also. There is power in his plan. There's purpose for every pain that you are going through. There's also power in the plan of God. Look at this promise. I want you to see this in in verse two. Look at this promise. He's the God who, who will bind us up. He is the God who heals. He is the God who revives. He is the God who raises. He is the one who restores what is broken. God loves to raise up that which was dead. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Your knockdown doesn't have to be your knockout. If you're down, you don't have to stay on the mat. It might have even been God that pushed you down. Sometimes he has to make us 
lie down in green pastures. God sometimes will wound us. He will push us down. He will strike us down. But that's not our knockout because it says here that he will, he will raise us up. Do you see that in verse two? After two days, he will revive us. Verse two, on the third day, he will raise us up. Verse two, that we may live before him. There's purpose in our pain. There's power in his plan. And, and our knockdowns in life don't have to be our knockouts. It will be God who raises us up. So let me ask you this kind of blunt question. Is there dead joy in your life? Is the, is the freedom in your life just declining on a lifeline, barely holding on? Is your marriage dead? Your heart dead? Your grace dead? Your gratitude dead? God loves to take dead things and bring them back to life. If you feel knocked down this morning, it is not a knockout because God promises us that he will raise us up. God is in the business of resurrection. If you'll listen very carefully, very closely to verse two, you'll begin to hear some whispers of a cross and a resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53 says that it was God who struck down Jesus. It was God who afflicted Jesus. It was God who put all of our sins, multiplied by all of eternity, by all humanity. It was God who placed those sins on the shoulders, on the life of his son, Jesus Christ. There was pain. Listen, there was pain in the cross, but there was power in the plan of God as he raised Jesus on the third day. There is purpose to your pain, friends. Because there's power to the plan of God. Verse three. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. And he will come to us as the showers. As the spring rains that water the earth. You see God is, God is faithful. God is not reluctant to to bless us with an abundance. He is an ever constant, ever sure God. Look what it says here in verse three, just as sure as the sun is coming out at dawn. That means that God is, is, is always constant. He's ever sure. He's always faithful. He is always at work in our lives. He is always restoring things. He's always reviving things. He's always redeeming things. He is always in the act of saving. As sure as the dawn came up this morning, as sure as the sun rises tomorrow at the dawn on the horizon, so our God is at work. He comes to us in abundance, it says in verse three, in a downpour, this, this constant rain, this, this deluge, it's a downpour of his love, his grace, and his power upon us. You know, rain in, in Israel is so rare. A few drops of rain throughout the year until the spring. And I love that God had it raining on us this morning as we came in to read this passage today. Late February, March, April in Israel, there's just a, a torrential downpour of rain. What the earth needed for so long, the dry earth needed for so long, God sends the rain. He sends the spring rain. So what was dry is now alive again. What was dying now is restored. In the same way, God comes to you. God comes to us. God comes to me. At the driest points in our life where, where we feel like we're almost done and we, we stand before him, we stand under him and he comes to us like the spring rains, a downpour, a, a torrential downpour of his love, his grace, his power, the intensity of the rain, the intensity of his presence. 
So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Here's what we see here. The third thing is there's a passionate plea to know the Lord. There's a passionate plea. That's why Hosea repeats it. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. In the Bible, to know the Lord really means four things. You can take that phrase to know the Lord from really the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and see that primarily it means four things. Let me give you these four things and they will be in a deepening level as I give these four things to you. This is what it means biblically to know the Lord. Here's the first thing, to know some facts about God. To know his resume, to know what he has done, to know what he has accomplished. To know his characteristics, the the character of his nature. This is what it means in the Bible to know the Lord, to to know facts about God. And that's not a bad thing, but it's an incomplete thing. So let's go to the next level. The next level, what it means to know the Lord is a heart understanding of God. So it moves from this knowledge, it moves from information. And I think probably all of us in this house, we've got a lot of information. We're we're a generation filled with, with information. We are informationally obese today. But that it moves down to the heart. There's has a heart understanding of God. It's how God impacts you at the core of your being and how you love him, how you're moved by his presence and how he moves in you and through you. So yes, facts about God, that's knowing God, but also this heart understanding of God. But here's the third one. Let's continue to move deeper, a deepening level, what it means to know the Lord. The third thing is experiencing God. That God is here and God is near And God speaks to us by his spirit and through his word and through his people. But you also speak to God. It's that relationship aspect. In other words, it's not just God at church, but it's God at home and God at school and God at work and God in the car. Experiencing God in a relationship, not just information, not even just your heart being moved, but you're experiencing him in a dynamic, vital, living relationship. But here's the fourth thing. I think this is probably the deepest level biblically of what it means to know the Lord. It's a constant awareness of God. You're just constantly aware of his gifts, of his grace, of his generosity, of his power, of his love, of his spirit, of his presence, of his promises. And you can't move. You can't take a step. You can't flip the calendar until you're fully aware that God is with you and that he has given you everything for life and everything for godliness. You're fully aware of his gifts and his kindness to you. And so what Hosea says here, what the spirit of the Lord is saying is let's pour out all of our energy to this. Let us press on to know him. Let us give every intense effort to know him. Let's go after him. Let's be active, not sleepy. Let's be pressing, not lazy. Let me just say, if you've been away from him, if you've been in rebellion against God and you wear a backpack daily of all the shame and hurt and mistakes of your past, there's a God who says, take that off and come and know me. Come and return to the Lord. All the guilt and shame and hurt that you carry around daily, lay this down. Listen, if you think your best spiritual days are behind you, return to the Lord. I've got good news. You can return to the Lord. I've got good news because there's a gospel that God so loved you. That he sent the son, Jesus. Here's what I mean when I say that. The gospel is not good advice 
on what to do, but it's good news on something that's already been done for you. I'm not saying this morning that the gospel is following five steps and everything will be good. I'm not saying that that the gospel is just good advice or five points of a sermon. What I'm saying is that it's good news. The gospel is good news that something has already been done for you. There's a cross and there's a savior who went to that cross that death might be defeated and that you could live a restored life. Dear Jesus, who do you think you are? You came riding into town. You claimed to be God. The people lined the streets and shouted, Hosanna! Oh, it looked like they loved you. But they didn't. They did not love you. They did not heed your words. They were not your friends. They were your enemies. And before the week had even ended, they crucified you. And now, here you are, nailed on a cross naked and weak. Of course, the only reason I'm here is because I know what you're really up to. You are paying for something. You have been crowned with guilt, the shame of all the people you love. The mistakes of every person, that nagging selfishness that emerges from the womb like a cancer that never stops growing, the cheating, the backstabbing, the despicable things they wish upon others, all the secrets kept under wraps, kept behind closed doors. I can see you pushing with your feet, trying to breathe underneath the weight of it all, all the petty anger of prideful men the blatant disregard for others, the lack of compassion, the insistence of entitlement, the material obsessions, the unspeakable amounts of money they spend on looking good while their fellow humans are starving. What does it feel like knowing that all of this is on you now? Every divorce, every abandonment, every deadbeat dad, every gunshot, every kid lying dead in the street, the men who kidnap girls and sell their dignity for a few dollars, all the insecure rage and outbursts, the I hate you, the I'll do what I want, the pornographic addictions, the jealousy, the idols, the celebration of vanity, the constant pursuit of look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, now we're looking at you. Jesus, and all I can see is a world drowning in sin and suffering. I realize these were not your doing. Nonetheless, I'm happy for you to be taking the blame. Humanity has done a fine job with this, but I'll take it from here. Before we're done, I just have to ask, what kind of person claims he can forgive the whole world? Who do you think you are?
Dear Death, I got your letter. My apologies for it taking a few days to write back. I had some important work to finish. I know you weren't expecting me to reply, but I'm always eager to provide the answer to a good question. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the eternity before history. I am the potter who spun the galaxies. I am the spirit over the deep and the one who tells mountains to migrate. I am the cloud of day, the fire of night. I am the co-conspirator behind the scandal of grace. I am the keeper of the books. I am well aware of the debts that line the pages of every generation. And today I am stamping each and every one of them paid in full. son. I am the voice in the ear of every young girl whispering, I created you, and you were created beautiful. I am faithful even to the faithless. My name is salvation. My name is power, even power over you. Do you really want to know who I am? I am the foot on your head. I am the spear in your side. I am the one author of this story. I am the one holding the pen. And I will block you out with a single stroke of my hand. I will have the last word because I am the word. And death, I am here to give you a word. On Friday, you weren't attending my funeral. You were attending yours. The nails in my hand will be the ones in your coffin. And just to be clear, I was not a victim of human plans, and I was certainly never a slave to you. I am the victor. I am the master. I am the one who sets the captives free. And not only have I broken your grip on me, but I will pry your fingers from all who call my name. You are done. You are powerless. Your work is null and void. Pack up your bags. Go and tell your friends. It is finished. And in case you're still wondering, who do I think I am? I'll tell you who. I am. Sincerely, Jesus.